this gentleman wanted me to do a number for him, and but we're just going to play a fiddle number for him. He's from the state of Arkansas, and the number's entitled The Arkansas Traveler. Let's go with it, boy. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. We're listening to Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys playing The Arkansas Traveler, a song that lends its name to a politician's con. More on that later in the show. Our program tonight seeks to understand the stereotype white trash by discovering its deep historical roots. But first, we'll turn to the here and now. WFHB reporter Casey Ross asked local residents the question, what do you think of when you hear the term white trash? When I think of white trash, I think of it more as an attitude, um, uneducated, closed-minded, um, uh, oh gosh, uneducated, closed-minded, that's about it. Maybe somebody that uh, is hateful. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with race or religion, but it's just a frame of mind. <laughs> I think of someone who is probably not very well educated, more than likely Caucasian, uh, someone who probably expresses their opinion without anything to back their opinion up. I think they probably react more than anything. Uh, and I think it's a derogatory term. And uh, I hope, hopefully there's not a lot of white trash in our area. But I suspect there is. <laughs> well, I think what it refers to is supposedly poor people who live poorly, have little income, little education, and not necessarily very thoughtful in their morals and judgments and critical thinking. And I guess the old term of white trash, people live in trailer parks, it's very terrible to say that. People, you know, it's a, it's a pejorative label. It's unfortunate, it's like a, a number of other stereotyping sort of thing. It doesn't disclose all the wonderfulness of people, so you know, kind of I, implies they're throwaway. They're throwaway, and nobody, nobody in the world is a throwaway. Uh, well, it's 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 a real loaded uh, kind of phrase, if you will. Uh, these days, I tend to associate that that phrase, the white trash phrase, with things like uh, meth and things like that. I think that anyone that would say that is just um, uninformed, and you know, it's just not a very just something I wouldn't say. I don't, I don't know how else to tell you. I just think it's um, abusive, basically. Tonight's show is Unfounded America, taking out the myth with the trash. And my guest is Nancy Eisenberg, author of the new best-selling book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. Nancy Eisenberg is the T. Harry Williams Professor in American History at Louisiana State University. Among her other books is Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, she joined me via telephone. In our first segment, we'll get a simple answer to what is now a complex problem of culture, politics, and economics. The British made us do it. This country is founded on a class hierarchy brought to these shores by its colonizers and is an unremitting element in our social organization. You gotta be able to say you're better than someone or you're no one. Unfounded America, Nancy Eisenberg on the untold history of class in America. 
on Interchange on WFHB. Well, I think it was, uh, I saw quoted somewhere, Simon Shama said something like, like history ought to be depressing. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I, I think people have said about my white trash book that it will make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think history should make you uncomfortable. I think it should force you to understand complex things, not assume that the past can be reduced to a soundbite, uh, and to realize that when we try to understand the past, when we try to look at the facts, <laughs> that we appreciate the complexity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny. I was thinking as uh, as I was reading through through the book. Um, there's this thing we teach kids, or we say all, all the time, sort of also like sticks and stones can break my bones, but names or words will never hurt me. And this is actually um, probably exactly wrong. It's supposed to be uplifting for children to hear that, to realize that they can they can find inside themselves the strength. Uh, to carry on and to not let someone demean them. But what this book, and and I pay a great deal of attention to vocabulary, to looking at how each generation reinvented a taxonomy for describing the poor. Mm -hmm. And the reason I do that is because even sometimes historians mute the past, because instead of saying, instead of talking about squatters and crackers, who really were the landless frontier people who moved into the back country, you know, during the, you know, even before the revolution, the American Revolution, and after the American Revolution, scholars have preferred to call them settlers, or if we think of the term pioneer. Uh, these terms are deprived of the very potent political meaning that is given to class and has always been given to class categories. And you, you, you erase that again. You, you remove that from the story if you don't pay attention to the words that are used and what they mean at that particular time period. Right. That's pretty fascinating in, in a general sense to imagine that uh, I would not have an even challenged the idea of pioneer or, or settler uh, in terms of it uh, making a kind of neutral or va- value value positive term um, and sort of erasing the 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 on the ground hardships and strangenesses and violence and everything else that you get thrown in there with the reality of life in that period. No, and even I mean I found an article in the 1840s where they were debating this and essentially. They said that settler is a more neutral term. Um, so even in the 19th century, hmm. politicians were aware of the potent meaning that was attached to words. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as historians have to pay a great deal of attention to that, not make the text so reader-friendly that we erase the fact. Because we know history is a contested medium. Um, Not only do we have the popularizers, the people who invent myths, who try to rewrite the past in a more favorable way, a way that can be celebrated, and that unfortunately tends to be the case with popular and public history. Mm -hmm. But we also know that something like the Civil War, I mean, that's been a battleground. Um, um, How histories are written um, and who has the right to tell histories is, is not a neutral terrain either, because we know the whole long history of the lost cause and 
Southerners who, you know, bent over backwards to somehow redeem the Confederacy and paint it in a favorable light, uh, and, and again, sort of not tell the complete stories. And I think that we have to recognize, and that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about history. The topics that I've written about usually are ones where I've been the first step of a good historian is to challenge the mythology, to find out what is the consensus and to question it and to be skeptical. I mean, even if we, and if we look at the political landscape, even today, um, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders has talked about class, Donald Trump has been attacked as the white trash candidate, I still think that Americans don't really know how to talk about class in a meaningful way. Um, they're looking for a shorthand, easy version. Um, and that's why I think, you know, even though Bernie Sanders is right to say that the, we, we need to pay attention to the gross concentration of wealth in the 1%, that's not the only problem. You know, the problem is also the class ideology that many of the upper middle class and the middle class shape it, hold in order to reinforce the boundary between them and the poor, them and the lower classes. Um, and that's how a class system is upheld. You have to have an ideology that gives people a reason to rationalize poverty. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the, the primary uh, question is poverty, and we've been talking about that for a very long time, and the idea that you, you point out, uh, multiple studies have, that we were born into a class and we stay there for the most part as well. Yeah, I think that's the thing that, that challenges the greatest myth, because the myth perpetrated by people like Thomas Jefferson and others is the idea that we broke free from the British class system at the time of the American Revolution, that it was a dramatic change. And this is repeated over and over again when Americans say, we're an exceptional country. We're a country that is the land of opportunity. We actually provided for social mobility and for erasing the, the, the rigid class distinctions. But the real story is that we were, at the time of the American Revolution, people like Franklin, people like Jefferson, have been imbued in a British culture. So they adopted a British culture for thinking about the poor. And one of the key, I, I highlight two key themes that recur again and again, because America, for most of our history, was a rural society. So I'm talking a lot about the rural poverty, but the importance of, first of all, the way in which the British analogized the poor to people who lived on wastelands, the importance of land as a metaphor of civic virtue if you're a property owner, and then as a measure of failure if you are landless. So a lot of poor white trash, a lot of the names that were used to describe them describe horrible land, uh, bog trotters, uh, pineys. Sand hillers. And this is the idea that the poor are just extrusions of the scrubby, swampy land which they occupy. Um, and wasteland itself, that term led one of the earliest promoters of British colonization, Richard Hacklett, to argue that the people who should be sent to the New World were waste people. So that's really where white trash comes from. It comes from a way of British thinking that goes all the way back to the 1500s. Um, and that's where I think my book is decidedly different, because no one has really traced it back to its British roots. Most people who've written about white trash either talk about the contemporary period or root it in the antebellum south. 
Now, it's not that the antebellum South isn't important, because that's the first time in the 1820s we know that the term white trash is first used. It appears in print. Uh, but that's not really where the term comes from. I highlight that Jefferson and Abigail Adams, when they referred to the rural poor, called them rubbish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just a variation on the, on the same theme again. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. What is trash? I mean, we say white trash, or it's what we say now. I don't know. um, When you're talking about waste people and rubbish and the various other nasty things that that people are called, um, uh, one is off-scourings, which is like fecal matter or something like that. And um, yeah. Thanks to the Elizabethans for that. But then, as I right. said, that was also a favorite term of Jefferson Davis. It doesn't disappear uh, in the 1500s. Well, let me ask, is there any relation to, um, like, the enclosure laws in the time in, in Britain as well, that uh, there's this, like, uh, a kind of land grab there where all of a sudden people who were living a particular way are now renters and then they're shoved off into uh, to become soldiers and moved to the town and things like that in that area? Yeah, I mean, you can find uh, important parallels. I mean, what the group that the British despised the most were vagrants. Mm. And these are the mobile poor. And again, when you think about the transition that's created by land enclosure, forcing people off the land, uh, that obviously increased uh, the number of vagrants. Um, And and just as like I talk about, you know, early North Carolina, uh, and the way in which they are closely identified with the dismal swamp. Again, the way in which the land defines the bog trotters and defines the poor in North Carolina in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. You find a, a similar group of people who are seen as, you know, vagrants, you know, living in the, living on the worst land as squatters, essentially, because they have no place else to live. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that idea of the mobile poor is, 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 is another consistent theme. So we have one that associates them with waste and trash. Another theme is this idea of mobile, the mobile poor who are seen as outside the economy, not having a stake in the economy. And that's essentially what gets attached to the terms squatters and crackers. Mm-hmm. They are actually seen as people who are landless, who occupy land they don't own, um, they can be violent, they threaten people who have legitimate title to the land to get off land that they want to lay a claim to. Um, and you also get that idea that I highlight that we don't understand about our own mythology is that when Jefferson and Franklin, for example, talked about the promise of America, they, fo- they focused on the size of the continent, and Tom Paine too. They were all talking about the future, what the future held would be conditioned by the vast land holdings in this large continent. So what they were really promising was horizontal mobility, not upward mobility. And what they argued is that essentially, if you're not making it uh, in the original colonies and the states that, that they were turned into, then what you needed to do was, you know, pack up and move west uh, and migrate. Uh, and for Franklin, he actually believed, he made the argument that Western migration would reduce class tensions. He argued it would create a happy mediocrity, that somehow the extremes of wealth would disappear, that it were more likely to exist in an urban environment. 
But the problem with that is that he was wrong. (laughs) The class system moved west. Large, powerful land speculators had access to the best land. They had the inside track to the land office. So land was never free. It was never open. I'm not even mentioning the fact that, you know, the really darker inheritance from the British ideology is that they argued that the poor were kind of the first wave of migration because then they would be the ones who would have to fight and deal with the Native Americans. And if they got killed off, nobody really cared. Um, So they were kind of the first wave. And then the next wave, the more sophisticated commercial farmers would move in. And the squatters, if they're still living, would have to move on. That's something that Franklin even argued. He basically didn't like, he was not at all empathetic to the poor, despite his, you know, his upbringing. His own bootstraps. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't at all empathetic. But then he went on and said that the solution is people move west, and he said the stronger will reproduce large families, and if they work hard, they'll succeed. But he also said that if they don't succeed, they had two options, move on or starve. That's essentially was his idea of how you deal with the problem of poverty. It should be the new motto for the country. Yeah. Move on or starve. You know, the interesting thing about the idea of the mobile poor as well, it struck me that this was the problem with uh, the the remnants of the, the indigenous culture, the native mobility as well, the people who, who didn't buy land, didn't think you could buy land, and the government itself had to figure out a way to make them homeowners in some sense, or um, you know, so they would be tied to the economy, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, I highlight like this in the very first chapter, when the British looked at Native peoples, they didn't understand their economy. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand the way they looked at geography and the land. And, of course, what did they immediately do? They saw Native Americans as nomads, as vagrants, and therefore they used that argument. That argument was one of the fundamental arguments that they used to justify taking land away from Native Americans because they didn't engage in the proper use, the productive use of land, which meant you had to do it the English way. You had to build fences. You had to stay on one track of land. You had to get title to that land. land you had to secure sovereignty to that land. Even for the, the Puritans, for example, you had to have cattle on that land <laughs> to prove that you were a true homeowner and you knew how to use the land and make it productive. Um, and so it's not surprising that many early colonists viewed North America in general as a wasteland, as a terror waste. And they, they didn't, it was a way to justify arguing that Native peoples had no legitimate claim to the, to the land. This kind of, this, this fundamental assumption, and, and what I'm trying to highlight, this isn't at all surprising. Of course, they're going to look at Native American peoples through the lens of their own British experience. So who do they analogize them to? Vagrants. It's time for a break. You've been listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America, and a biography of Aaron Burr called Fallen Founder. Our break music is Possum Up a Gum Stump by Snuffy Jenkins and the Hired Hands, which Eisenberg tells us was President Andrew Jackson's wife Rachel's favorite song, for which he was disparaged as being low class. When we return, we'll talk about the founding ideas about breeding, and how these lead, via Darwin, to the eugenics movement in America. 
which served as a template for Nazi Germany's program of genocide. More of Unfounded America with Nancy Eisenberg when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our program is Unfounded America, taking out the myth with the trash. And our guest, by telephone, is Nancy Eisenberg, historian and professor at Louisiana State University, whose most recent book is the provocative White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. For this segment, we'll examine the way animal husbandry and breeding extended to the early 20th century's belief that the traits of those labeled white trash, alleged to be laziness, criminality, insanity, epilepsy, alcoholism, pauperism, and so on, could be eliminated via the pseudoscience of eugenics. We'll also look at Andrew Jackson and the way politics became the art of performance and democracy its theatrical mask. Jackson employed what Eisenberg dubs the Arkansas Traveler strategy for winning over the white rural poor. The name comes from a mid-19th century folktale in which a traveler was greeted by a squatter at a log cabin with humorously evasive responses to his questions. Finally, the traveler offered to play the second half or turn of the tune the squatter was playing on his fiddle. The tune was the Arkansas Traveler. In his happiness at hearing the turn of the tune, the squatter mustered all of the hospitality of his household for the benefit of the traveler. Uh, a lot of what I think you're trying to do here is is say these things have more uh, real consequences than we imagine, or that you know it's not just the fact that we take sides and call people names, but this is how uh, we manage our culture or our politics. Uh, you go from uh, maybe it's Andrew Jackson that kind of turns the tide, and how how we begin to to um, imagine politics in this dichotomous way i suppose the the um the way in which jackson did a very uh good job of pretending to be the kind of person that was also uh from the underclass i suppose yeah i mean uh, why jackson is significant is um he is seen as the first president to be identified with the common man um in part because he came from a poor background uh he ended up migrating into Tennessee. Uh, he was not as well educated as his, you know, as his predecessors or even the people he was running against. You have to remember, you know, one of the people he was running against was John Quincy Adams, mm -hmm. um, not only the son of a previous president, but probably one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. <laughs> you know? That's a mark against him. 
you know, he taught rhetoric at Harvard. He was knowledgeable in diplomacy. And in a way, it's sort of that problem we even face today, where, where intelligence is disparaged. Um, so Jackson is important because he was the first person in which his supporters wrote a campaign biography about him. He didn't write it himself. It wasn't a memoir. Uh, but they, it, it's significant because they were saying his life story is the reason you should vote for him. Um, and what I highlight is he was always very controversial. Uh, people, what I found so strange is that people thought he was more genuine because he talked like average men of the working class and the lower classes because he was known for cursing or what they described as slamming oaths. Right. So, <laughs> um, so you'd want to have a beer with Andrew Jackson. Yeah, I mean, and, the, and the, 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 he was so controversial that, of course, he, he, the same way these ideas were being celebrated and we see the emergence of a certain kind of what I call, you know, cracker populism, um, he was also viciously attacked on class terms, particularly his wife, Rachel Jackson, because essentially she had been married before, so she was attacked for her, you know, backwoods immorality. Um, he was seen as stealing another man's wife. Uh, and she was also attacked, you know, for the way she talked, her lack of education, you know, that her, you know, favorite tune was possum up a gum tree. So essentially, you know, at that moment, you can see how important class is to defining uh American politics, a new kind of populism, but as I also argue, it's a false populism, um, which gets revived over and over again. It's used in presidential elections, but I quote an, an Australian observer from 1949 who really captured the problem of American democracy. He said that Americans don't have a real democracy because we accept huge disparities of wealth. He said what we do have is a democracy of manners, and what we want from our candidates is for them to look like us, to act like us, to make the claim, even if it's not true. <laughs> because at the time that even Jackson was running for president, he was very wealthy, he was a slave owner. Um, and that, that demand that we require a performance from our candidates, that they somehow pretend to step down and be one of us, is a consistent theme, <clears throat> and a very dangerous theme, a right. performance that is demanded of these candidates to somehow claim to be one of the people. But clearly, as soon as they get into office, they're not one of the people anymore. They're the most powerful person in the United States. One of the things that struck me there as you were talking democracy of manners um, in this particular situation, if we imagine class is the driver, uh, democracy being a mask in some sense to say this, you know, this is not an actual democracy, but it, we can make it look like one. There's also a way in which maybe the, the economic system does the same kind of thing. The capitalism and free markets and these things become masks for class as well. Yeah, I think this, you know, this is one of the things that we don't pay attention to. We, we don't pay attention to how power is really exercised, or we get a glimpse of it. So there's a, there's a scandal, and the news covers it, um, and then it recedes into the background. Um, and I think that it is a problem when we revert to either thinking, well, American democracy is the greatest in the world, when in fact, throughout American history, there have been endless attempts to disenfranchise the majority of the population over and over and over again. The other problem is this idea as you're talking about, the way if we just assume that the free market economy is magically going to open doors 
What we forget is that at the same time it opened doors for one part of the population, it closes doors for other people. <laughs> um, so who has privileges? Who has advantages that other people don't have? We don't have an equal playing field. And I think the myth of, of the promise of social mobility, the promise of hard work, the idea of that we are the Amer- that this is the land of the American dream, does serve as a convenient mask because it, it erases power dynamics from the equation. Probably most important, I, I, I think, in terms of trying to understand how populations are looked at, uh, the, the primary myth of individualism clashes against uh, all of these things that we talk about. You know, we don't live singly, and we are not individually able to manage our lives, and yet we continue to, to, to beat that horse over and over again. And it's interesting that, that it's something that we fault everyone for. Yeah, I think it's the, the individualism is another myth that we tell ourselves. The idea that people imagine they do it on their own, and no one does right. it on their own. I mean, even today, in 2015, sociologists have found the most important predictor of being successful in this country are the wealth and privileges that come from your parents and your ancestors. So we, we are very much shaped by the privilege that comes from the past and is passed from one generation to the next. And that's the importance of inheritance, heirs. This is, again, this British tradition. And we, we, we don't question that. We somehow say, oh, of course parents are going to do everything possible for their own children. Mm-hmm. But when we assume that that's the engine, that is going to divide us into classes and reinforce class lines. The other important thing that you're referring to with the eugenics movement, this, again, was my other big theme. I had the theme of wastelands. The other is breeding. Mm-hmm. Breeding, right. It's an older rural idea where people like Thomas Jefferson sort of assumed that instead of you know, rigid, politically enforced uh, classes. He said, let nature define class. So it's about breeding, and he actually assumed that America would create a natural aristocracy because the best men would not just marry women for wealth, they would select women as mates who were attractive, who were smart, who were virtuous, and they would create uh, through nature a natural aristocracy. Um, and that, but that idea, again, comes from the British, because the British were equally obsessed with pedigree, with lineage. Um, even our current obsession with genealogy is an extension of that. And this is where eugenics comes from, because <clears throat> long, even before the eugenics movement begins to gain momentum in the late 19th and early 20th century, we already have people like Alabama's Daniel Hundley, who was the foremost defender of Southern society and wrote a book in 1860 where he said the South had seven different classes, and he said at the top was an inherited aristocracy, descendants of royal cavalier blood. And then at the bottom, of course, he put white trash, who were heirs of the wretched poor dumped in the American colonies. So that idea of thinking of people's breeds reinforces the idea that you are born to your station. And that idea of animal husbandry focusing on breeding, uh, be, you know, reaches its fullest development with the eugenics movement. Mm-hmm. And what we forget about the eugenics movement, which I think is so important, we like to think, oh, that's something that the Nazis believed in. Well, in fact, eugenics, the leading promoters of eugenics were in the United States and Great Britain. And the Nazis built on our research, our pseudoscience. And it was widely endorsed by academics scientists, the military, used IQ testing during World War I, uh, and as I also highlight, it was endorsed by prominent politicians like Theodore Roosevelt. And I think 
this idea, this fear, was that we had to protect our pedigree. And pedigree wasn't only the pedigree in your family. Now it's the whole national stock that needed to be protected and preserved. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. In 1913, Roosevelt wrote to the head of the Eugenics Records Office and said, degenerates must not be permitted to reproduce their kind. And this wasn't just a small, little, minor movement. By 1931, 27 states had sterilization laws on the books, and eugenics courses were added to college curricula. And I, of course, highlight the important Supreme Court case in 1927, Buck v. Bell, and who is the person on trial but Carrie Buck. And she was chosen because she was the perfect specimen of white trash. And here's how she was described. She was described as one of the shiftless, ignorant, and worthless class of antisocial whites of the South. And this is the the sort of, we can see the potential when we target a group, we rationalize and claim that they're permanently going to remain inferior. Nothing you can do can change that. Charity won't work. Giving them education is a waste of time. And then, you, you know, the alternatives that in this case developed was that they shouldn't be allowed to breed, that they essentially should be sterilized. And the largest group that was targeted for sterilization were poor white women. And there's also a racial dynamic to this as well, because the fear of many prominent elites, particularly in the South, and this is connected to the famous Virginia Integrity Act of 1924, because the Buck v. Bell case also came out of Virginia, was the idea that poor whites, because they were poor, were more likely to socialize with blacks, and they were also kind of the dangerous uh, source for increasing, you know, the mixing of the races. Hmm. So these fears, the way in which we think about class, the way in which it takes on traits of, you know, viewing classes as breeds is, is, is very comparable to the way our racial thinking was, was perpetrated and well ingrained in the 19th century as well. Wow. Um, and this is kind of the dark side of the history. The, and this goes back to our founders. The founders believed, yes, in protecting the idea of liberty, but they believed that only people who owned land who were educated and responsible could exercise that liberty. Yeah, responsible to be uh, at liberty. Right. right. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, let's 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 go back to the uh, the Virginia law uh, law was that 1924 that, yes. that you said. Uh-huh. So, uh, and and the way you expressed that there was the fear of the uh, the vagabond white trash group that's dangerous um, mixing then with the uh, the uh, asbat or worse, uh, uh, I guess African American people in 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 that space as well. So it's it's a fascinating thing that that that's a bald state of why you create or continue to create the sort of dissension of racist you know particulars within these communities as well so so they don't get together and and join forces yeah i mean that's kind of the interesting thing i mean with the racial integrity act it was intended to prohibit marriage between blacks and whites mm-hmm. it also targeted people who claimed they had indian blood the, the the people promoting this law assumed that people were using that as an excuse to hide you know, they're black blood. And this, and this is the way they talk about it. I mean, yeah. this is like going, I mean, when you talk about bloodline, right. this is like the same thinking that can be traced back to Thomas 
Jefferson, and it hasn't evolved one iota. And I think that the eugenicists, they also wanted to require a racial registry, tracking pedigrees, to ensure that no light-skinned black with Indian blood might marry a white person. They really had this fear that because poor whites and poor blacks were more likely to socialize, and this we can trace to the assumption that I think most people tend not to understand is the idea that many middle class and elites believed that, you know, poor whites were literally no better than poor blacks. This, this assumption that we assume that, you know, poor whites were always the ones on the attack, they're the ones leading the charge, the racist charge, to ensure the boundaries between white and black and, and are grasping to whatever little privilege they might have, that isn't always historically true. Hmm. Um, it's used by politicians, and I highlight is that as well. It was used by people like James Martin in Mississippi in the 1900s, Orville Faubus around the Little Rock, mm-hmm. Arkansas, integration controversy, people like George Wallace. It's convenient for politicians to sort of use that rhetoric of the zero-sum game, that if you give any privilege to free blacks, somehow that deprives from, you know, working-class whites. And we know that rhetoric works, and it's used over and over again, but it doesn't explain the whole history. (laughs) It doesn't actually explain the the nature of social and personal relationships that did exist between poor whites and poor blacks. And you're right, the, the greatest, one of the greatest fears of many elites particularly in the South, with the rise of the populist movement, where it was assumed that, you know, the interests of poor blacks and poor whites should be united, that essentially they did have the same issues, the same concerns, the same grievances. So that movement was going to be, here we get back to your idea of the, the, the people who had economic power were immediately going to try to destroy that movement, undercut that movement. You know, the the complicated side of our history. And, you know, what I try to argue is that we have to understand that race and class are intertwined. We have to realize that we don't want to confuse white privilege with class privilege. Not all whites are in the same boat. They don't have the same opportunities. And neither do all African Americans today. We can't assume that even racism operates independent of class. We know it doesn't. So I think to fully understand the long and complicated history of race and class, we have to sort of look at them um, at each historical period and how they define people's real lives, their material conditions, how it shapes certain ideologies, how it can be exploited by politicians, and when there is pushback, uh, when people do argue against these kinds of prejudices. But it's, you know, it's an unending battle. It's time for a break. You've been listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, historian and professor at Louisiana State University and author of the new book, White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Our break music, the bird's version of You Ain't Going Nowhere, prepares the way for our final segment. In it, we'll dispel one of the country's primary myths, social mobility. We'll face the facts, You are class-bound from birth to death in America. The exceptions only prove the rule. More of Unfounded America with Nancy Eisenberg when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Pack up your money, pick up your tent You ain't going nowhere Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our program is Unfounded America, taking out the myth with the trash, and our guest by telephone is Nancy Eisenberg, historian and professor at Louisiana State University whose most recent book is the provocative White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. For our final segment, our focus is on the lie of social mobility and the truth that class defines our future in America. But first, we look at the way class is marked upon us by physical identifiers, from the way we dress and speak to the color of our skin. To stick with a little bit the the idea of breeding, it's one of those things that just always strikes me as such a, for lack of a better term, I'd say it was interesting. The idea that you you look at the science that you can and noting you know the various uh, people that clearly have this sense that you can make people like you make horses or uh, cattle. But this is as as we tie this into slavery, it's an interesting uh, thing to think about too. Obviously, I think that enslaved peoples were also, uh, I think, probably bred and experimented as, as, as breeding stock as well. Yeah, I highlight that a lot. That was a kind of dominant theme in the colonial period. One of the most important laws ever passed in the colonial period was a Virginia law of 1662 which basically said that you are a slave when your mother's a slave. So basically it's saying that your matrilineal lineage, your pedigree tracing back from your mother, and and that also reinforced the idea that the child is being equally defined as a bastard because the father's identities is mm-hmm. important, reinforced again this idea of breeding. And, and clearly people who had slaves into the 18th century referred to the children as breedlings. You know, they referred mm-hmm. to them and used the exact same language. So that language of breeding, yes, is a consistent theme that links both class uh, and race in significant ways. Um, and, and what I have tried to do is say that it, how it also shapes the class vocabulary. Many historians have highlighted the racial dynamic, but they've missed the class dynamic. It's it is is it a hard thing to uh, to realize? I think that a lot of these things are visual markers. I think in particular the physical appearance of of many that we term white trash or uh, some other uh, disparaging term, they're uh, undernourished or um, I think there's a a section in your book on a a hookworm clan or something like that. You're exactly right. I mean, one of the points I make is class is not just about wealth and occupation. It's, as we've seen, it's about pedigree and breeding. It's about appearance. It's about the way you dress. It's about the way you talk. I mean, have we forgotten my fair lady? <laughs> we immediately judge people unconsciously when we look at them and we size them up. 
Why do we refer to the nouveau riche? Because these are people who've moved up the social ladder. That's not celebrating upward mobility. That's saying these people don't belong here. They don't know the unspoken rules of how you're supposed to behave when you move into the upper middle class or the elite class. That's the basic basic message of the Clampets. Yes, yes. I mean, if you think that that whole sort of television show was about accentuating the way in which the, the Clampets didn't belong in Hollywood. And as, as one, I highlight uh, what I thought was an amazing article that was written in 1963 by Hal Humphreys of the Los Angeles Times, where he said the Clampets proved that Americans are very class- conscious, because essentially every episode <laughs> was about, you know, the wealthy banker and his, you know, family, you know, his snobby wife and his effete son were always getting into tangles with the Clampets. And the point of the, the message was to say, well, we don't want to be like the snobs or the slobs. We are, the, you know, going to be in the middle and we're superior and therefore we can laugh at these, you know, these clownish people and their class deficiencies. Uh, but that's the, the dark side because I think that um, that's the thing I'm trying to get at is the way in which class operates as an ideology where you always are comparing yourself to someone else and you're always trying to say you're better but it's 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 another way of how americans uh tend to avoid the class problem and look for a story that somehow celebrates inclusion but at the same time it doesn't really celebrate inclusion it's it's, it's still about dividing lines uh and it's still about you know, making sure that people can say, well, I represent this, therefore I'm superior to you in some way. You struck me when I was reading, um, you mentioned um, at some point uh, people being called or having yellow skin, um, the yellow diseased look about them, and it struck me that uh, I was just reading uh, Frankenstein, actually, and it's a big part of Frankenstein is how he responds with horror to the monster's uh, flesh and his eyes, which are yellowish, and his flesh is yellowish, and to think of eugenics and creating this beast, you know, uh, that is something out of out of the devil's, uh, you know, cauldron. Yeah, I mean, the, the tallow skin is really important. It really, be, I mean, it actually is associated with some squatters and crackers. There's descriptions of their brood of yellow children, mm. but it becomes really emphasized by the antebellum period, particularly the 1840s, and it's identified, their skin color is compared to candle wax, it's tallow, and this idea of being not quite white. So skin color, I mean, this is another example, the same way we know that race is defined by skin color, it even is applied and used to talk about poor white. Mm -hmm. And of course, the cause of that, when it's first being identified, people don't understand the diseases that the poor... Um, and you mentioned them earlier, these really horrible diseases of pellagra and hookworm. And hookworm has to be the most horrible disease possible, and people should read about that and realize why it was, why it was incredibly dangerous to walk around barefoot. Mm. You know, our, our happy ideas of the boy on the hills and, yeah, and Tom Sawyer dangerous and Huck Finn. when you don't have proper sanitation. But the, the key thing is hookworm and pellagra were also called the lazy diseases. So this reinforces the idea that, you know, these diseased people, that laziness itself, and this is what eugenicists believe, they believe that prostitution, that laziness was something that was an inherited trait. 
it's just fascinating. It's just, it's just, it's just so, um, but it's so consistent and so continuing, right? It's not like we're, we've moved anywhere different from this particular perspective, as far as I can tell. Well, I think when we, when again today, when we either say that the poor, and there are people, unfortunately, I think one of them I quote in my book who says that, uh, essentially the poor should be willing, as I said, to starve a little, or that if you're not working hard enough, it's your fault. Um, so we're still trapped in this idea of dismissing the poor, blaming the poor, and failing to recognize that the most important thing um, for often determining our success, and this is a quote that I particularly like because I think it's, it's really powerful, is from the 1962 landmark study on poverty. This is The Other America by Michael Harrington, and he captured the devastating reality uh, he said, the poor were where they are because, quote, they made the mistake of being born to the wrong parents. And that gets at the heart of the problem. Right. <laughs> when we don't acknowledge the privilege that middle class and upper middle class people have, when they are given, whether it's wealth, education, um, and one of the studies I also cite, which is really remarkable, is that in the United States today, the middle and upper middle class, give almost, on average, 50% of their wealth to their children. Whereas in other countries, where they provide more social services, Sweden and Denmark, they give closer to 25%, 20%. And this is a perfect example. We are replicating, by making it all about inheritance, the old world aristocracies. Whereas these countries that people want to disparage, disparage and say, oh, they're promoting socialism, in fact, are doing, have more social mobility than we do. Uh, because it's not all dependent on the wealth of your parents. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Nancy Eisenberg, author of White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. This is our fact. Uh, your, your book, White Trash, points out that the white trash is the fact of America. This is the land of the disposable, the, the home of the uh, off-scourings. Yeah, and I think this is, this is, you know, this is part of what we have to recognize, that America does not just open doors, it closes doors. We've had more downward mobility than upward mobility. Our country, throughout its history, has been racked by depressions, by panics. I mean, that's why I always highlight the Great Depression. It's a really, that chapter we see where, for the first time, Americans are taking a much more sensitive and complicated way to talk about class. Why? Because in 1932, 20% of the population are out of work. You can't suddenly blame the individual for not having a job. Um, and I think that's why we have this moment where suddenly people are much more empathetic to poor white tenant farms. Hmm. Uh, and they begin to realize that uh, the possibility that the economy does shape your opportunities those opportunities are not equal across the board. Um, and that even for, for things beyond your control, it also undermines that whole idea of individual agency. That you may want to work hard, you may be smart, you may be talented, but there's just no job for you. Right. Suddenly that makes people realize that maybe they shouldn't be so easy, it shouldn't be so easy to dismiss other people who've had bad luck, who've had misfortune, um, who haven't been given certain privileges such as 
educational opportunity. Right. Do you think? But that didn't stay with us, though, right? I mean, that's no, part. No. Right. That's the part of the problem is you can. You have. I mean, right. you do have that interesting, you know, post World War II moment mm-hmm. where, for the very first time, America has a more stable middle class. And why? Not because of the free market, but because of the federal government by the GI Bill providing education by the federal government for the first time, you know, insuring home mortgages so people can buy homes, people can can invest in businesses. Um, so that idea that, I mean, that is kind of an interesting moment, which I highlight, where we see there is more of an embrace of understanding and appreciating lifting people up and having a middle class. But even then, I highlight it's not perfect. Because with suburbia, we have what we still do today. We think home ownership is the key measure of being in the middle class. But then what happens at the same time? We have the rise of trailer parks. And we have the reinvention of the mobile poor. Just like vagrants, this time it's a home on wheels. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and trailer parks are located in the worst parts of the cities, on the margins. Right. You have secondhand, thirdhand trailers being sold and as sociologists begin to describe hillbilly havens. So even when America does have a kind of more stable middle class, we don't even at that moment completely acclaim. We don't achieve what Richard Nixon claimed we achieved in 1959, a classless society. Well, you, you make the point uh, continually that uh, these, are, these are, I mean, poverty is constructed in possibly the same way whiteness is constructed. You know, I like to qualify when we talk about whiteness. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, I think some scholarship that's been done on whiteness, you know, ignores class completely. As I said before, not all white people are in the same boat. We know that 42.1% of those below the poverty line are white. Um, So we have this problem. I mean, I think it was in an interview I did yesterday where the person was highlighting a journalist's response about somehow we have to choose whether it's race or class, which is the most important variable. And that's crazy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We have to understand both of these conditions, both of these variables, to understand the past or the present. Um, And we have to understand that whiteness, I think, can, has been used by elites to make certain claims about being in power. There's no doubt about that. But the same people who are, are the elite, they also looked down on poor whites and thought they were more worthless than slaves. Because poor whites didn't even work. They were just parasites. They were waste. Yeah, they were not economically viable. So that's the, the problem we have. Who, who has the claim to whiteness can be reinforced by class power. But when we analyze that, we have to realize that it's the class power makes that possible. Hmm. It's not available to all white people in the United States, either historically or here and now in in you know, in 2016. Well, so you stress that the power the the lower class white person gets is from not being black. Well, it's very mixed. I mean, I think that's why it gets complicated. Mm-hmm. There are there is again a political ideology during the Confederacy. Uh, they made that argument. They claimed that if you know slavery was abolished, that that would lower the status of poor whites. But in fact, the status of poor whites was already at the bottom. Um, so that was a way to convince them to support the Confederacy. It wasn't actually based on actual social conditions. And that's the problem we, we always have. I think we have to distinguish when is it rhetoric, when is it an ideology, the way we talk about race or the way we talk about whiteness. And then does that really match up to the, 
to people's actual social conditions, which usually don't match up with the ideology, because ideologies are supposed to mask those problems. Right. Um, and I think that's what I really think people have to um, understand, um, that we have to understand our economic divisions, our class divisions, the way they can reinforce racial divisions, but the way they also can be shifted and changed due to economic changes, cultural changes, and they're also very much always wrapped up in political ideology. And we, we can't pick one variable on the other and say, that says it all. That's all we need to know about. That's the ultimate form of oppression. The world doesn't operate that way. People in power will use whatever is necessary to oppress people. They're not just going to say, oh, I'm going to limit myself to this one category. That's our show. Thanks to Nancy Eisenberg for joining us to discuss her latest book, White Trash, the 400-year untold history of class in America. And here's a bonus. This program edited my conversation with Eisenberg down to about half its original length, so we'll post the extended full conversation online. In it, you'll be treated to Eisenberg's takedown of the musical Hamilton. Not only is it bad history, but it turns Hamilton the man almost exactly on his ideological head. Go to wfhb.org slash news slash interchange to find it. Our final song for Unfounded America is Worried Man Blues, recorded in 1927 by the Carter family. It takes a worried man to sing a worried song. Next time on Interchange, Theater of Empire, we'll talk with author and scholar Doug Harvey about the way all types of performance, including traditional theater, circuses, red face, and blackface minstrelsy, were used as a means of conforming public opinion to the aims of American imperial expansion. Forms of entertainment embodied and translated the ideas of imperial and economic expansion from London, at the hub of the British Empire, to the Great Plains of America, and played a key role in shaping concepts of nationhood. Theater of Empire, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.